another way that, you know, if, if you're from Australia, you don't have, you don't have friends there. What I did is I just my, my sister, she's not in real estate. So she's not looking at the market from that context. My best friend there, he's not in real estate. He's not looking at the market of the context. They're just driving to work and just going, maybe they know the neighborhood. So I went on bigger pockets and started reaching out to everybody who was, who was investing there in Louisville and just started talking to as many people as I could just about the market. Where are they investing? What zip codes are they investing? Where do they see growth going? What, what areas do they stay away from? So by the time I started looking at properties, I knew the areas that, you know, the, were the war zones. I knew the area that, that had some growth. I knew, you know, I had so much more to go into it. So when we finally started looking for deals, I started calling brokers and I started calling property managers. And I was very specific with what we were looking for. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, guys, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, the number one podcast geared towards helping international investors and real estate entrepreneurs break into the U.S. market and start buying cash-flowing deals. From Los Angeles, I'm your host, Reed Goosens, Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, as you know, it is my job to interview, dissect, and explore the cream of the crop when it comes to real estate investing here in the United States, so you can all make the right investing decision to create massive amounts of cash flow, long-term wealth, and financial freedom. If you do like this show, please give us a review on iTunes, and you can also follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching Reed Goosens. That's R-E-E-D-G-O-O-S-S-E-N-S. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jason Yerusi. Jason is a serial real estate entrepreneur and his current portfolio consists of four fix and flip homes, three beach summer rentals and one 94 unit apartment complex. He owns and runs WA Building Movers and Contractors Incorporated, a house raising company that serves homes in flood zones in New Jersey and New York. Jason and his wife, Pilly, are also the host of a cracking new podcast called REI Foundation. So without further ado, let's get them out here. G'day, Jason. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Reed, I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me on today. My pleasure. Where are you dialing in from today around the country? Beautiful, rainy New Jersey. I'm sure you're jealous. Yeah, so jealous, mate. Here in Southern California, <laughs> the sun has been shining and summer is yep. amongst us. So really, ah, that's amazing. As you can see, the surfboard's in the background. Uh, yeah. for, for anyone who is listening to this on iTunes, we are now gone live. Well, not live, but we are now on uh, YouTube. So jump over onto YouTube and check us out and see what we all look like, right? So, um, mate, without, before we get into the nuts and bolts of today's show, can you elaborate a little bit on your background and what made you change your mindset to go out of, or not essentially leave your day job, but to get involved in real estate investing and, and you know, start creating financial freedom for yourself. Sure, sure. Now, um, come from a, a family background of five generations of construction. We work in heavy rigging. We actually move buildings and lift houses. That's our day wow. in and day out operation. Uh, we've done that for a long time. Uh, going back from my dad, my grandfather, uh, the better part of over uh, 40 years now, um, moved homes, Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania. Uh, most of the work now today, the day in and day out is due to Hurricane Sandy. Hurricane Sandy did a massive amount of damage here on the East Coast. and Still, still after all these years. Still, four years wow. later, <clears throat> the insurance rates are starting to actually take their increases in place. So homeowners are elevating their homes for the 
purpose of hopefully basically keeping them at a risk for future flooding, mm -hmm. reducing their flood rates going forward and making them FEMA compliant and just basically getting them back in their house. Uh, so we do that day in and day out. We've raised about 1,500, it might be 1,600 homes since the storm. So there's been a, a lot, lot done, still a lot to do. We've been really happy to get a lot of people back home. And it's tough work. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's heavy rigging, tough work every day, day in and day out. You know, we're, we're beating the pavement down, beating the grind of, of just getting this work done. It, we do it rain, sleet, snow. We're working in all conditions. And we've always talked about real estate and just finding ways that we could create generational wealth and create ways that we could bring in passive cash flow. So we're not constantly just having this hard, laborious work in front of us. Sure. You know, it's, it's great work. It's gratifying uh, just having other avenues that would allow us to bring in revenue. That's, that's so interesting. I was living in New York when Sandy hit and it was, uh, it was very devastating. Um, you know, it won't go into all the details, but it, it was definitely an eye opening for, I think those people living along the coast there, um, and talk, talk about infrastructure. And, you know, I come from Australia where sand dunes are really prevalent, you know, right. If you live on the beach, there's a massive, always a massive sand dune you know, for a natural sort of, um, dam or, you know, um, to, 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 to dam the water. A lot of places on New Jersey and, and, and in New York just are straight on the beach, right? You walk from your back door onto the beach. It's maybe two or three feet above sea level. And, you know, we're in a massive storm like, like uh, Hurricane Sandy. Boom, they're, they're, they're up the creek, as they say. So, but, you know, heart goes out to all those people that lost their homes. And obviously, you're doing the right thing and uh, helping them raise their homes. So, you just you, you physically just elevate them or do you actually physically move them to a different... Uh, new the location? majority of the work right now is strict elevation, meaning we're taking the, the home. If it's a wood frame home sitting on a foundation, we'll actually take the wood frame home and raise it to a higher elevation and right. a new foundation will be built to height. Generally, if we do move properties in New Jersey, we are moving them on site because the cost to move it onto the roadway, just the disconnecting of the utilities can be it, it, just an amount of money that it's actually not feasible. It's not, it's not, the, the cost doesn't really produce what, what the property would actually be worth in the end run. Right, right. So you can just take a, a bunch of uh, carjacks around, right? And just start thinking <laughs> on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish it was that easy. You know? So we're actually taking a lot of structural steel. We set yep. the steel under the house with within the, uh, the footprint of the house. We're actually putting, well, it, they almost look like Jenga blocks, but we mm -hmm. set cribs or crib blocks, which are large oak blocks, six inch by eight inch by four feet in length in certain points where they can carry the load of the home. And within these crib blocks, we'll actually set crib jacks and they're 15 ton jacks. And these jacks tie back, back to a man manifold and the manifold is called a unified jacking system and through oil pressure we're able to evenly distribute weight to the house where we can actually take the weight of the home and raise the home 14 inches at a time and then reset our fleet until we get to the required elevation and then we'll set it into a place we're basically creating a temporary foundation so a mason and a carpenter can come right behind us and set in the new permanent foundation to be able to set the home down. Love it, man. I'm, I'm a, my background is in structural engineering. I'm a qualified chartered structural engineer. So I know all about that sort of stuff. I, I used to, there was a, there was a, uh, a program back on uh, back in Australia called House Movers in Britain, and they would move old churches around the country. And, yep. you know, they've got the, the time lapse sort of thing that, that, that progressed throughout the, but it was, love, great stuff. Love it. Love it. But yep. we're not here to talk to you about 
you know, your house moving business as interesting yeah. as it might be. I'm sure a lot of people are, are rolling their eyes thinking about structural engineering and, uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and building blocks. Um, but we are here to talk about your journey because you've just completed, uh, you've just completed the, the, the purchase of a 94 unit building in, uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, which is absolutely bloody amazing. So today's show is really all about understanding the processes you went through to get it closed, the trials, the tribulations, but ultimately the success in getting it over the line, which is really, really important. You got it there in the end. Um, so let's start at the beginning. Um, I've just sort of mentioned the property is located in Louisville, Kentucky. Why did you choose that particular market to start investing in? Well, so I'm in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Of course, prices per unit uh, is a lot greater than, than the Louisville market. Um, and what just it just came down to simple math. Um, and we'll, then we'll talk about the market specifically. But if I have a property in New Jersey and say maybe it's a four-unit property and it's going to cost me $400,000, that would be $100,000 per unit. And I was getting you know maybe $1,200 or $1,300 for rent per unit. Mm-hmm. Well, if I go to a property in Kentucky and maybe I pay $25,000 a unit and I'm getting now $500 a unit. Just, just the, the times of, you know, I'm paying four times less, but I'm only, pay, I'm only getting, you know, half of the rent. It, it just, right. the numbers made so much more sense where, where I, I could just actually make that process work out there. Sure. So when I, when I thought about that, I said, wow, okay. And uh, I actually saw other people doing it and surrounded myself with some people who basically became mentors and they said, well, find markets that, that have the right metrics. And with the right metrics, we started looking at markets that had population growth, they had uh, job growth, they had job diversity, they had limited housing starts where, where people were building because there was more people moving in, but the people that were moving in was exceeding the number of units being built. So then it gave us better drivers for that. And lastly, which was a huge X factor, is that it was markets where I also had people on the ground. So Louisville, right. um, my sister's there. Okay. She works at GE. She's been there 10 years. Uh, my best friend growing up in New Jersey when I was young, his family's from there, and he moved back there about 15 years ago. Um, his cousins, I all know. So I just had a bunch of people in the market, so I knew the market very well. And that came down to two other markets that were also looking in the same thing population growth, job dynamics, and also people I know. So we basically were looking at the area. Uh, we wanted to focus on B and C assets because we knew, you know, when they're building, they're only building A assets. Plus for the B and C assets, that, that was a niche that allowed us to take advantage of maybe mom and pop operations where the uh, management inefficiencies were lacking, where we could get in there and find a property that, w- that was, had upside. And the upside could be whether or not it, we could fix the property or we could increase rents or we can improve the management inefficiencies. And that's how we really started focusing on searching in that market. Sure. So talk to me a little bit about why Louisville? Like Louisville seems to me, um, I know you said the, the, the good job growth, but in terms of metrics, why are people moving to Louisville? Is it growing because it's an affordable city or is it growing because I out of out of another necessity because i do know it's uh it's more of a a horse industry right out there or is that lexington kentucky right uh lexington's more that that is it's it's a lot of large farms of course you have uh the kentucky derby in louisville so that brings a ton of tourism but louisville is although it's not centered on the map it's considered 
center of the basically the United States. So if they have, you have FedEx, you have UPS, you have Amazon out there, uh, you have GE because it's, it's a shipping portal where if you're uh, in Louisville, you can ship to the East coast, New York city or Seattle and basically the same time frame. Right. So it's a major port right there in the center. Plus in Louisville, you're just a hop, skip and a jump, just to jump to Indiana and Ohio. So you go right over the river right there and you have people coming in right for the job. So it's been growing rapidly because new companies continue to come into the market. Very interesting. And, and talk to me a little bit about how you went about finding this particular deal. Um, but, but before you do, I think it was really important that you had chosen a market where you had boots on the ground, right? You could leverage people that you knew to, you know, your best friend and your sister are out there. So you had innate Maybe, maybe you didn't, but maybe you sort of subconsciously had a bit, more, a bit more of an idea about a market, which is really key for all those people listening out there because, you know, Jason has thought about it, sat down and said, okay, what markets do I know like the back of my hand? Or I could get really knowledgeable really quickly because I have, you know, a brother, a sister, a best friend there. So um, talk to me about how you located the property once you located the market. Sure. Well, a few things just to carry on your point right there is another way that, you know, if, if you're from Australia, you don't have, you don't have friends there. What I did is I just my, my sister, she's not in real estate. So she's not looking at the market from that context. My best friend there, he's not in real estate. He's not looking at the market of the context. They're just driving to work and just going, maybe they know the neighborhood. So I went on bigger pockets and started reaching out to everybody who was, who was investing there in Louisville and just started talking to as many people as I could just about the market. Where are they investing? What zip codes are they investing? Where do they see growth going? What, what areas do they stay away from? So by the time I started looking at properties, I knew the areas that, you know, the, were the war zones. I knew the area that, that had some growth. I knew, you know, I had so much more to go into it. So when we finally started looking for deals, I started calling brokers and I started calling property managers. And I was very specific with what we were looking for. We were looking for BNC assets. We wanted 75 to 200 units. We thought that was a great placard because it's maybe a little bit too small for, for the person just looking for a duplex or, you know, a triplex, but it was probably too, um, I'm sorry, too big for someone looking for a duplex or triplex, but it was too big for maybe a REIT. So it gave us a nice little niche where we could, we could comfortably get into a property. It allowed us to have uh, management on site and allowed us to have a full-time staff. And so we started reaching out to property managers, brokers, and just telling them what we were doing. And for their point, just keeping on them, touch back with them, touch back with them in a couple more weeks. And eventually we started getting some deal flow coming in. And with that, we started just breaking down the properties, breaking down the, and putting in offers on actual numbers. And this property itself, it actually was on the market about a year earlier, got some traction and then all of a sudden um, fell out of contract and then went off the market. And the property manager that we are working with on the property actually brought it to us and said, hey, listen, this property was on the market. It was on the market at this price. Um, here's the financials. Take a look at it. We said, okay, great. Took a look at it. It did not even come close to working in that number. So we just went back and said, you know, this is what it works for for us. And we're happy to put in this offer and see what their response. So they were at 3.2. We put in an offer of 2.1 and they said, wow. no, thank you. Very, yeah. Thank you very much. Um, we're still at 3.2. And we said, okay, that, that's fine. Um, that's just what our numbers say. And, you know, we appreciate it. And uh, if something changes, you know, let us know. About four or five months went by and uh, that property was still sitting out there. Nothing had happened. We know that the property wanted to get moved because the uh, father who basically held all these assets. The guy had about a thousand units and this was just the largest one. It was a 94 unit. He was in his nineties and the kids had taken over basically control of the properties. However, 
they're not in real estate. They're, they're in their fifties and they're all living out of state and they kind of just got this thrown on them and was like, you know, what are we doing? So we went back in there and said, you know, we could probably come up to 2.150. So 2,150,000 and all of a sudden they could get, that was it. And it was like, you know, we weren't, we weren't trying to beat them up, but it was kind of where the numbers, you know, we knew that at this property we could get up to about 2.4 and that's where we could really get to. So next thing you know, they, yeah, they came down to 2.6 and we said, oh, well, okay. You know, whoa, we got something going here. Right. So over the next three, four months, we debated back and forth. And it really came down. We got to 2.3 and they said, well, okay, 2.3. If you pay your broker's commission, a deal's done. And we said wow. done. That's yeah. incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. I, I want to just quickly rewind because, you know, as, if you don't know, if you've been living under a rock and you've been following this podcast anyway, somewhat, the, the real estate market, particularly multifamilies, is hot as hell, right? Hot as Haiti. Yes, and, yes. and how did you given that they wanted $3.2 million, given for, it's a 94-unit complex, are there, is, is Louisville just living under a rock? Is there not many other competition? How did you string out like a six-month negotiation process, given the fact that it was already on the market? It's really, really hot here in the United States when it comes to multifamily. And, mm-hmm. and did you have any like, you know, just and why, how come you were in the driver's seat and not someone else would come and snap it up? I maybe we got lucky. I, I, I would, I would hate to say, but possibly, you know, <laughs> yeah. like it, it wasn't, it was on the market and then it had come off. And I think that the, the kids who had taken it over, they got offered 3.2 million. And that's why they had this, that this number in mind and whoever had offered this amount went in and, uh, you know, got into due diligence and retraded down at like 2.4, you know, right. like, so like, and then like they said no. And then a year later, here they are still sitting on the property. They didn't put it back in the market. It's probably not, you know, front of their mind because they're doing their everyday life of, whatever they do in their life. And for mm-hmm. that point, they probably just said, man, what are we doing here? You know, like this is what everybody's telling us the numbers work at. And uh, I had good people, you know, we, we'd brought on some mentors, brought on some people that, that were really doing this. And they said, just stick to the actuals. And yep. what really got us to the finish line is we, we showed them the, uh, we actually showed the uh, sellers. We said, we sent them over our numbers and we said, this is how we're doing it. Like when we were right at that point where they were at like 2.5 and we were at like 2.3, we just said, well, this is why we're doing this. We're not, we're not doing this because we're trying to beat you down. This is just the numbers that work for our returns. And, you know, we're happy to go in this number, but we just, we can't go any further. Right. At, 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 you know, what, 2.3, $2.4 million, you're looking around like $24,500 a door. That's a, that's yeah. a steal. Now, yeah. is that, what sort of vintage was it built? When was it constructed? It, it was uh, between 1971 and 1974. Uh, okay. Some of the units have been updated. Some still have the shag carpet from day one, you know, so <laughs> they're all over the place. Um, it, it's, it's a blue collar, you know, you got factory workers who are living in there, you know, maybe, maybe the mailman's living in the building. Um, it, 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 nice area. It's got growth. Um, but it, path of progress. I'm sorry. Was it in the path of progress at all? You know, in terms of, was it a gentrifying neighborhood to, 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 to get it, to attract better tenants over time? It is a strong rental market and the properties around there, literally uh, the apartment across the street uh, is under contract at 42,000 a unit. It's wow. more two bedrooms than we have. But what we had here is that our building was maybe keep, it, it was the largest asset, but it was maybe bringing the neighborhood down because you had some other owners there that had pride of ownership. They were sure. taking care of their properties or out there, you know, they, they, they had great tenants and this one, um, it was just getting left behind. So the path of progress, there's not so much development going on right in that specific area, but it also is uh, like there's no new construction in that sub market of it, but that's also to our advantage. But even if, you know, say 
the place across the street trader at $40,000 a door, mm-hmm. even if you said, okay, it was, you know, the market's really at 35, you're still picking it up at a $10,000 discount. You Correct. can go in there and put in, you know, six, $7,000 and you still have a nice little buffer there to make some profit. So, so well Correct. done. That's, that's, that's a really cracking little deal. Talk to Thank me about, the, talk to me about the underwriting process and you know, how, what stood out? Was it the fact that this was a mum and pop shop, uh, mum and pop owned, and that they were not driving rents? Were there other opportunities to, you know, increase the gross rental income and maybe even reduce operating expenses? What did you, what were the sort of the top three or four things that you said, okay, you know, I can increase rents, I can do this, I can do that, I can do, you know, X, Y, Z, and I'm going to get it, you know, be able to push that NOI by 20%. Sure. I mean, simple things is that, you know, they had just allowed the property basically just continue to operate. They were doing rent raises ser- seriously on a napkin. Like when'd you raise rent? They're like, Oh, let me pull out the napkin. Oh, it was um, July, <laughs> July. We, we went up $15 just straight across the board. So they were 75 to a hundred dollars between the one and two bedrooms under market per wow. unit, literally across the street. That's under and, market, right? So that's, under not market. Rent, that's not even rental premiums on top of that, right? No, that's okay. it. So they had a, the laundry rooms were basically being used as just storage. So you have that to come back online. Every other complex in that area is charging uh, basically pet fees, $300 non-refundable pet deposit and uh, between 10 and $25 a month for pet fees. So they didn't allow pets, but 10 of the apartments had pets and they weren't even charging for them. Right. So we're the only complex not doing that. So simple math. Um, their, their maintenance was way out of whack. And where we got lucky here is the management company that we, we brought on board. We, we really vetted them great. And uh, they manage uh, another 80 units in that area. And we're able to actually use our maintenance staff and do economies of scale by having that maintenance staff also work in the complexes around. So it's able to cut down our maintenance costs. We're implementing water in efficiency program. We're going to be able to change out all the toilets, change out uh, all the faucets and the shower heads to cut down the water bill because this is an all owners paid property. So that was important for us is to be able to take the utilities down a notch. Um, and there was also boilers that had seen better days. Mm-hmm. And so we're taking an account to, to improve the boilers and improve that on that side as well. So that can cut down on that. So it's probably the top three would be um, ways to just be able to bring in more income and also cut down on, on our waste in, in maintenance and also utilities. Right, right. So you could, there was no opportunity to do a rub system in this, pro- in this property? Not in this one, just because the surrounding part- properties are not taken into account there. Um, so the other properties are actually, there is a opportunity to separately meter. Uh, however, the rub system taking on that part, uh, to increase the rents and then also put the rubs on, it was, it was too much for where that tenant base was. Yeah. 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 No, that makes sense. Um, and talk to me a little bit more about your tenant base. Uh, you said, you know, factory workers, did you look at like the median income of or household income in that area to understand, you know, how that correlates to rent and, and how did, does that play a factor or will it play a factor in the future? Yes and no. Um, I looked at rent drivers right now. We're at, we're at 6% vacancy being 75 to hundred units under market. Literally all the other complexes in the area are at 3% vacancy and they're paying market rent. Right. So something's showing us here and it, it was a funny scenario. We, we went in there and there was three units that were vacant and completely rent ready. And we went into the, the office and the ladies watching. It, it was a hilarious story. The ladies watching Dog the Bounty Hunter and she's like annoyed that like we're in there like asking her questions because she's <laughs> watching our show. And I'm like, so well, how do you how do you get these units uh, rented? You know, like, what, what do you guys do? Like, like, what's your numbers? Like, how many people? She's like, oh, you know, some people kind of walk by sometimes and just like, <laughs> 
Wallace and that was it, you know? And I, so I'm sitting there like looking like, Oh my God, there's three units just sitting there ready to be rented and you're, wow. you're just hanging out. So it, it, it was simple as that people want to rent this property. You need to fire her and get someone new, right? That was it. You know, day one. Yeah. So it was it day one. Yeah. So thank you. But, uh, but yeah. Awesome. So. Awesome, man. So talk to me a little bit about, uh, how some, any sort of lessons you learned, like I take it that it, it wasn't a competitive market. Well, it sounds competitive, but you had time to negotiate. So you didn't have to put in like hard money day one, right? You didn't have to really come to the table in terms of trying to get a deal closed. So yeah. Any tips and advice on submitting a strong offer to those people out there thinking about, you know, buying a 94 unit apartment building? It would be the first tip I would give you is that learn your terms, learn what you're talking about and get onto the broker. And when the broker sending you stuff and this, so the first part is you, you want to get a, a broker on your side that, that he knows you're going to take action. So if he's sending you stuff, get back to him. If it doesn't work, that's fine. Get back to him and say, listen, I appreciate you sending this to me. This is not what I'm looking for because of X, Y, Z, ABC, whatever's the fact. And then when you're going in to put an offer in and the offer is about a million dollars under where they're asking, explain why. Don't just send them, you know, 2.1 because then it looks like you're just sending them a low offer and you haven't really taken the time. Explain right through the process. I'm going to give you this offer. You know, it, I, we just want to know your thoughts. If, if you, if you're willing to present this, this is going to be an offer that is, is slightly substantially lower than where the asking is right now. Mm -hmm. But this is why we see it this way. And, and we're happy to go in with this offer. And if it does, we'll do a quick due diligence process. We'll give you a turnaround time. That's completely, completely transparent and we'll go right through and we'll get this deal done. And just yep. to, you want to know one, you're going to take action and two, you're going to be able to close. Right. And, and I think that's a big thing for them, right? Is that they've had some stuff arounds, being on the market for over a year. They had an offer. Like that's really frustrating. I'm, I've, I've, been, yeah. I've sold properties, not necessarily 94 units, but I've, I've kept all my multifamily. But some, some smaller stuff, I've had people offer. It's taking the drag in their feet. And, you know, it's just very frustrating. All you want is a deal done. So uh, you're sort of coming to the table with a good offer, but also understanding or tell, explaining to the broker why it doesn't work at maybe what the, the asking price is or the whisper price. So, um, so okay, so you got on the contract. Uh, you've done your due diligence. You've analyzed the market. You yeah. know that there's some great uh, value-add opportunities to be had. Talk to me. You've got a signed LOI. Now let's walk through the DD process. If you've got 30 days, I assume you negotiated 30 days of DD before you went hard with right. the money, correct? Yep. Okay, so who was walking that, that property day one? Was it your property manager that you'd interviewed? And if so, how many property managers did you interview before you chose your current management team? Well, I had someone give me great advice because trust me, we made a ton of mistakes. And I mean, that's just part of the process as you get into this. But the, the great advice was, put into the, con the contract basically that the due diligence process does not start until you receive all the items on your due diligence list and you give them written notice that your due diligence, you, you've basically received every item that is on your list and then due diligence started. Right. So it took them over two and a half weeks to get them all the items that we needed. <laughs> the, the, they, had, they had split the 94 units under three LLCs, literally the laundry income and expenses for two buildings was on one of the LLCs for wow. some some magical thing that I, I still can't comprehend. However, the fact is that's how we were looking. As I said, the rent, you know, the rent raisers were on napkins. So the info, getting the box of information to us and the complete, you know, the, all the checks on our, on our list right there took two and a half weeks. So now we went from 30 days to about, you know, give or take 50 days where we had time to assess the property it was perfect. It wow. Was and really did, great. Did you, and I think that's very, very key for everyone listening out there. 
always make sure your LOI does have those exact wording in there. That the due, the due diligence period does not start until your list, i.e., Exhibit A, and it should be Exhibit A in your LOI. Yeah. Uh, you know, covers you know financials. If you do want an example of an LOI, you can hit me up at uh, at Info at RSM Property Group, and I can show you exactly what Jason's talking about. Or you can hit up Jason. Yeah. I'm sure we're going to find out his contact information at the end of the show. Um, so. Did you walk every single unit or did you have your property management walk every single unit? Were you there for, for the most of the inspection period? How did that work being an out-of-state investor? We did go there for the inspection period. Uh, we went there on the inspection day, uh, February 3rd, uh, back to the property managers. I had called up about six yep. to seven and they all kept leading me back to this one management company. And everybody just because like this was a player and this was their focus and what I was saying was very specific and this is what they target. Had a great conversation with them, had been talking with them for months, asked them all the key questions, you know, what kind of software are they using? Uh, they had a proprietary software. It was It's accessible 24 hours a day, 360. 65 days a year, um, all the notifications, they, they have the right team in place. Uh, they have 5,000 units they manage of pretty much across within an hour's drive of Louisville. Uh, fluent, knew the market in and out, had all the right answers for all of my questions. I felt very comfortable with them. And uh, we went out there on February 3rd, did the inspection. They walked all the units. I walked a good portion of them over the five buildings and uh, saw the major things we wanted to see, the boilers, et cetera. Uh, got lucky. A lot of the structural elements to it, you know, it, it, brick facade, it, it pitched roofs. The roofs were relatively new. So in working order on a lot of the points, a lot of the improvements are just coming down that they have original appliances from the 1970s in some of these units. Right, right. So with the with that walkthrough, did they, um, also just rewinding just a little bit, when you put your offer in, did you send them your underwriting to say, hey, I'm thinking of operating it at, you know, this is what I want to operate it at, maybe $4,500, $5,000 per unit per year. Can you hit that? Did you, did you get their input on that? Uh, the management company? Yes. Yes. We wanted to know what their take was on their per unit expense. Yeah. And that, that was, that was prime. And that was the, that was the first thing, especially being an all owners paid property. We knew we were going to fluctuate between the buildings between about 38 to 4,100 a unit. And right now we're, you know, we're between 3,900 to 4,300 per unit right. right now, just currently as standing just on where the property was operating. Sure, sure, sure. So, okay, so once you've walked through the, you've done your due diligence, did any of your renovation um, budget go increase now that you've actually had a chance to walk the property? You've got your team in there, they're, they're walking, they're doing, looking at all the HVAC and electrical systems. And did that give you any pause if you did go up in value? You know, we had another great piece of advice given to us is that put in the contract that you have to have all units come rent ready. And that was a huge piece of advice because what was some of the, we, we had found a loan that worked for the property and were able to roll some of the CapEx budget into it. However, there was no GFCIs in the majority of the units. Uh, there was cracked uh, concrete pads in about five units. Handrails on two of the buildings were about to fall off and these were all safety issues. And they, we were able through having the compliant that they were going to fix anything to get us rent ready. The sellers went back and fixed all that about another $30,000 of uh, repairs for us prior to us taking over. Nice. That's, that's, that's incredible. And that's really, really important because having that rent ready, um, you know, tripping hazards or, you know, not code yeah. compliant, the, the city can come and, you know, shut you down essentially Correct. If, if, yeah. you're not, if you're not careful. So um, word of advice out there is uh, one, one little tip I sometimes do is uh, actually call up the local city inspector and say, hey, I'm looking at this property. Could you come for a walk during the DD phase? And he will actually, or she will identify those 
quote unquote, not to code. And then you can make a list and say, go back to the seller and say, hey, these aren't code compliant. We need these at least code compliant before we will take over this property. Yeah, I love it. That's great. That's huge advice. I just learned something myself. (laughs) That's a great tip. Thank you. Because, you know, typically... Uh, you know, city inspectors, you know, they're, they're a little bit like, you know, hail Caesar, you got, oh yeah, but you know, you got to walk yep. the ground that they walk on. But the city encourage, most cities I've, I've dealt with encourage a conversation about maybe an older property and how, like, if you show them initiative, yep. you're a young guy or young, young gal who are just like, I want to bloody take this thing down and you want to do the right thing by the tenants and provide affordable cost, affordable housing. Um, they're all, they're going to be all over it, like white on rice. So a little bit of advice for everyone out there. Okay. So oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's huge. You know, and they're, you're exactly right. Is that in the city may, you know, they are tough, but they, they want the city to be better. You know, it's all in their exactly. best interest. Exactly. So exactly. And if you explain it to them like that and yeah. you know, you have a little bit of now about you, you walk in there trying to talk to some higher up and they're going to, they're going to come and play, they, you know, and even if you, you have to pay for them to come out, but geez, coming, paying a couple hundred bucks for them to come out for the day to give them your advice. Now it can be a double-edged sword because they can go to, you can get a bit of a, prick and they can uh they give you a long a list as long as your arm but uh it, it's just something to to, to be aware of um, yeah great so, so jason you got it through dd you've said okay i've uh, i've got my capex budget what was your capex budget by the way uh capex budget when we came into this we had 165 rolled that we wanted to put into this um and with that if you take off the 30 that I actually got handled by it we're about 135 that's really good for 94 units. So are you doing any interior renovations to it? Like, you know, flooring, um, paint, during turns. Yeah. So yeah, during the turns, we're going to be doing that. Um, and that's one of the parts here is that we were able to get in the property where it, it, it's a stabilized property. So it's producing revenue, even, even though it's currently under market, it's still performing. And sure. being our first larger property, we wanted to make sure that we're not going into something completely vacant. We're not going to something with 70% occupancy that's, you know, maybe the effective is, is at 50. We had something that is performing. It's just performing properly uh, right. and poorly. So well, for this, we're able to still have revenue coming in and be able to use that revenue as we go just to improve the units throughout. That's, that's incredible. So you've got the DD stage. Your 30 days are up. You're going hard with some money, I assume. How much money did you go hard with after after DD? Uh, it, that would have been we were ten thousand and then ten thousand. Nice, 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 good, uh, nice, good low low amount of money. You don't have to, you know. Now, now during this time, you know, we haven't even talked about the investors. We're just talking about you know mm-hmm. getting this 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 thing done. So, talk to us about the financing track. Let's first talk about your the actual debt. What sort of debt did you get on this property to make it work for you guys? Uh, it's agency debt as a Fannie Mae loan, uh, 80% loan and 20% down payment. Oh, loan cost, yeah. yeah. So in 20% down payment, we were able to roll the CapEx into it. So we did a 7-6 arm, uh, rolled the majority of the CapEx into the loan. I mean, 7-6 for those people who don't know what that means? Uh, it's basically that's a seven-year term and the interest rate, it was a great interest rate. We're at 3.9 wow. and the interest rate can change uh, every month based on LIBOR and okay. so it can, it can fluctuate. It has a, it, in a, we'll say worst case scenario, the cap it could go to is 1% over the year, but it's also a max 7%. Got it. So you, you locked, you did like an uh, interest rate lock. Yeah. Correct. That's great. Great. And so overall, was it 80% loan to cost, including purchase and 80% of the renovation budget? Correct. Yeah. So in that, and so it, I think our total all in on the loan um, with the purchase price being uh, 2.3 and we were able to roll in um, where it got us to the finish line with that, with that broker cost right there was uh, it's 2,050,000 is our loan. 
is your loan. And so did you get non-recourse or recourse debt? Non-recourse. Non-recourse. Fantastic. That's awesome. And did you, local bank, how did you, when, no. when, when was that process when you were interviewed? Because you've got the, obviously you've got the one, you know, the due diligence going, you'd obviously have to have the finance track going. So how did you, did that happen parallel? How did that work? We actually, at the same time, we're reaching out to management companies. We were also reaching out to lenders. And we, okay. another great advice we had was that if you, if you got the property and then you're looking for debt, it's too late. Because you, you, <laughs> you're trying to get some company coming. And who are you? And luckily, luckily, my partner's been in real estate for a long time. He's on the commercial side. He had some great contacts with, with basically lenders. And so we reached out to a national lender. This is right in their alleyway, BC Assets. They do Fannie Mae loans all the time for this. Uh, told them what they were doing. And this was... Um, probably the third property we had sent to them because we had two others that we were relatively close on. And so we wanted their take on it too. We wanted to have their underwriting team. So they did a quick took and, you know, they have their numbers. They have mm -hmm. what their per unit expenses are, what, they, what they're going to want for reserves. And they came back with us each time, you know, giving us the thumbs up to proceed further. And that once we finally got this property, um, the huge point and the huge takeaway I, I, I had from someone was that you get the property and then when you're seeing this, you have your relationships with lenders, but then you have to find what that's going to work best for the property. Right. And this lender had, had this Fannie Mae. It's a, it's a basically, a, it's a small loan because it's still around $2 million where they mm -hmm. consider about $5 million being, being a certain loan size. So this was a, a small loan package through Fannie Mae and it worked perfect for this property because it, it was Actually, it was performing. However, it was not performing well. So we were able to take the capex, roll it into the loan on our first one. So that wasn't put on our shoulders as well. So mm -hmm. we weren't trying to get the property, analyze the property, raise the money. Because, you know, for this first one, you're, you got, it's all hands on deck. Everybody's right. just trying to, trying to do all the steps and get you to the finish line. And right. that really helped us. Nice, nice. Did the, did the, I noticed when I've been shopping some, some debt recently, mm -hmm. um, they give you sort of a, a, a debt service ratio. They'll, they'll look at the current NOI and they'll say of, of the rent roll or the T12, I should say. And then the bank will say, well, look, we're not going to go over. This only really supports, well, if, we, if, we, if we've got a debt service ratio of 1.1, this is your NOI. So you're only going to lend you X. Was there any of that that sort of, you know, hobbled you from not getting hitting 80%? Because I, I've definitely been shopping a few deals and yep. because of that in-place NOI, I can really only per, leverage like 60 or 70%, 60, 8%, 60%, yeah. What they were very key to work on is that since this had the rolling, rolling month interest change, that it worked at the worst case scenario of the 7% interest. And that's what they were really focused on that, that it worked currently and then it worked at the 7% interest. And so for that, the, the loan, loan to rate uh, coverage ratio worked perfectly. Right. Right. And any sort of uh, plans to maybe get into a fixed loan uh, in the future, once you've maybe, uh, you know, stabilize the property to, to get you out of that LIBOR risk. So to yeah. speak? we have an, 18 month repositioning plan in place. And we, we think we completed in 12, but since it is our first larger one, we put in 18 months just as a steadfast. And so at year two, we plan on refinancing. Great. Fantastic. Awesome stuff. All right. Let's talk about the capital raise because I'm assuming you went out to, to investors uh, using OPM. So how much money did you have to raise? Did you, did you raise a syndication fee? And during the whole due diligence and you got it under contract, did you start, you know, doing webinars? Did you start meeting down for coffee? Did you put together an offer a memorandum for your, investors to look at you know to sure. start bringing all the, the pieces together well we did yeah we we did bring in outside money um it would brought in about seven hundred thousand, and for that point that that worked fairly well for this property i, I another point is we should have definitely started the money raise 
in, in more fruition. We started, definitely should have started it earlier because it was one of those things where we had a bunch of people that were, were interested in the, you know, with your first one, everybody's interested, but until it's actually, you know, like let's, let's put the rubber to the road. Then right. you know, we had people jumping in, jumping out. It was like, it was like hot seats, you know? So it, it was a very interesting <laughs> couple months and uh, you know, it has to work for everybody. So, so sure. we want them just, you know, we, our investors are so excited right now to be in a deal and we're so excited to have them in a deal and we're so excited with the, the asset itself and what it's going to do. Um, but we want people to have that experience. So if it's not right for you, that's fine. But we literally had a, you know, in, in one swing, we had um, a guy who was in for 50,000 and a guy who was in for 150,000. Um, we're all, all of a sudden out, not because of the deal, but because of uh they, they felt bad, but they had something in their life that wasn't allowing them best. And I said, you know, one of the points, so that was a big swing for us over right. a couple of weeks period. Um, but it was just like, yeah, that's fine guys. You know, just, just let us don't, don't worry about feeling. I think they felt bad to say no because they were our friends, but it, it was fine. You know, it, it but it, it actually was harder for us to find out, you know, 15, 20 days later, then we were like, Oh, okay, let's do this again. You know, <laughs> but we did a 506 B, which means that we could bring a credit and non accredited investors. Mm-hmm. However, we couldn't go out there and basically shout it from the mountaintops. We had a you within family and friends. Sure. Um, we did do an investor summary. We actually did a uh, webinar or, or ourselves or just a, a recording of ourselves going over the property ourselves and send it out to all of our investors that we had talked about to the deal. And for that, we, we got to the finish line. I mean, it wasn't pretty and it, you know, it wasn't as pretty as it could be, but I don't know if it ever is. And uh, we learned a ton of lessons. Uh, we, we had a, you know, a reg D lawyer come in and um, they, they helped us a lot. I, I, you know, I wasn't a huge fan of them and it, it was more, I look back and it's more because I didn't know the right questions to ask. And sure. it wasn't so much, you know, they were doing their job and really the falters was we hadn't done this before and we had people, you know, giving us advice how to do it. But if I'm not asking you the right questions, how are you going to give me the right answers? Right. What sort of questions did you fail to ask them? You know, it, it, I, some of the confusion got down into some of the following requirements and whose responsibilities was it. And so, it, it, you know, we've, we've never done anything. We've never done this, um, the, the private placement memorandum. Sure. So for that, it, some of the information that we could have, pre, you know, it, it was about a five to six week turnaround from them to give us the paperwork. However, we didn't supply them with some of the information, but it was because we didn't know to supply them with some of the information. Which was so, like what? For just uh, example. Simple stuff. I mean, it was simple stuff that really doesn't even matter on a big scale, but like, like our, bio, uh, our bio, just like random things that don't matter in the, in the long run that we had to them within like 17 seconds of them asking, you know, right, but, it, right, that, but right, that was right. actually holding up the process unbeknownst to us. Yep. yep. So, and, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's all interesting because these are all the things, it just illustrates, this interview illustrates just how difficult it is syndication and yeah. it is a team sport. You need a partner, right. you need people on board, you need your investors, you need need a good attorney. You need to understand the process. You need a mentor. There's a whole bunch of things that you need to get this thing over the line. So, so well done. Uh, so from go to woe, how long did it take you from the, from sign of LOI to actually closing? What was that time period? Uh, little, a little over four months. Wow. Okay. So it's a long closing. Yeah. And, and it came down that there was two delays in the process. That was, um, they, the survey that the, um, the sellers had supplied ended up way late in the process, not being adequate. 
Mm-hmm. And that was right around when the um, the surveyor was was out of town, so that that basically delayed us two and a half weeks. Wow. And then uh, closing, there was some miscommunication for, through both sides. Um, just through it was when it, once again to the lawyers, you know, things can kind of uh, take take their time. And so the closing, we all knew that we were we were going to be in New Jersey, and we were not going to be in Kentucky signing this. And there was <laughs> yeah, everybody knew there was six hundred emails, and sometimes it's a. Uh, it's good to have everybody involved, but when there's 25 people on an email chain, of course, yep. there's patterns where someone can get get dropped off and, you know, lessons learned. But day, day comes and they give us all this paper and the paperwork and we're, we're signing everything and send it back and say, oh, you guys are in New Jersey. Well, the dates aren't going to match. And then all of a sudden that messed <laughs> up. It was, it, it was chaos. And uh, we had about three or four hundred hours in the postage going back and forth. As wow. We nine inch of papers in the matter of like 45 minutes. And uh, <laughs> we, we thought it was going to blow up because we had to get a one day extension. But everybody wanted this deal done sure. and what it really came down to is we just, we needed someone to take it, you know, take about the horns. We just need one person. We'll get this done. Just tell us exactly what you wanted to do. And, and we got it there. Yeah. Well, it, I it, think, was, it was hairy for a minute. So. <laughs> well, I, I think at the end of the day, you've got to take a step back and it goes back to what you're saying before that they want a deal done. Right. Yeah. And the thing is, if they know that you've got the paperwork signed, but it may just be out of date or they just have to lawyers, you know, people are pretty, um, you know, forgiving i think like they're not going to blow up the whole thing and say look yep. deal's off you know you've got two and a half months into dd you're not going to you know you've got your financing there we've got commitment letters from the bank our lawyers are good but the dates are somehow wrong because you're in new jersey not in kentucky yep. like i'm just a, maybe i'm just a good bloke but I, i'd be like look yeah day extension whatever let's just get this thing done you know like that changed uh it, it basically changed the paraded rents and changed some of the fees going back and forth and oh, so that was some of the things that everybody was sticking on like okay yeah. well it's one more day of rent so they, you know they want their one day which is of course cool you know so yeah, now we're going yeah, through sure, sure. doing all these paperwork and we got uh every and there was a lot of confusion in between and we we're just doing what we're told so we're you know yep. we're trying to go through the process here and and the, the sellers were that day when they were supposed to close you know doing what they were doing they were at the office to sign all the papers and nice enough they came back the next day yeah that's, so that's great man they're there in the office you know and i think i think it goes back to closing your first deal is like you know they can see your young guy your your wife's there probably you got your young partners and you want to get this thing done and everyone's yeah. sort of rooting for you right it's sort of they they're, they're there you know if you treat people well they're going to treat you back the same way so exactly i think it's uh it's awesome so to wrap this sort of conversation up i know we've been chatting about 45 minutes now what was the biggest maybe two or three pieces of advice that you can give to someone that you've learned in this process and that you're just like don't do this ever (laughs) and and i now know more about x you know given the fact that i you know we we did the due diligence what are the sort of the big lessons that you learned from coming out of this process i understand there's just a ton. So I, I would say what sticks out the most to you? What sticks out the most to me is that it, it, it was a big jump for us going to such a large property. We could have never done it on our own. And, and without having, you know, mentors in place and people surrounding us, you know, I, I talk to you, I talk to others, so many people giving us great advice because why make all the mistakes and have to learn all the mistakes over again? So many people are out there doing it and we, we faltered in so many ways trying to do it in ourselves because we just didn't take the time. When we finally sat down and said, 
okay, what are other people are doing this? are having great success. How are they doing this? Let's go learn from them and we can try and bring value to them. You know, we will like in some of these cases, um, we had some deals coming to us in other markets that worked in their market. So we were sending them deals, help trying to help them out. And just for us, we're allowed to absorb this information from them. So we're going through the process. And right. so sure you can do it on yourself, but why go through all that effort when you can have people right in front of you that, that will, will help you. And every time we screwed up, we said, man, we screwed up. You know, we made this mistake, but they didn't allow us to get too off track. They basically said, okay, you made that mistake. That's fine. You know, the, the, the mistakes are fine. You're going to make mistakes. And in real estate, you know, you see HGTV, but there's always these big wins. But, <laughs> but within those big wins, you, you fail, you right. know, and, and you fail 10 times and you have this great success, but then you fail again. And then you have four successes and you fail again. And that's just real estate. And, the, right. uh, and another key point from there is that you have to stick to actuals. You can't, you can't get into this point where, it, it, especially in a hot market, that if you're going to go into some kind of competition war over property, you've already lost. Right. You, can't make up for the, you can't make up for the buy. If we bought this poorly, maybe we got a little more conservative on this first one. It's our first deal. Great. But we're going to be conservative because we're also now responsible for other people's investments. So we want to definitely make sure that we're, we're putting our best foot forward. We're being responsible and we're buying an actuals. Got it. I love it. Be responsible, be conservative. You're going to make mistakes and that's okay. And just keep learning from it and keep plugging yeah. it forward. Awesome stuff, mate. Uh, I do. I always like wrapping up the show with asking my, uh, my guests to give me sort of a lightning round, the top five investing tips. You ready to jump into it? Sure. Let's do it. All right, mate. What's the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? I get up early. I have two young kids. If I don't get up early and I, I, I like working out, if I don't get up early, try and get my head clear and uh, between a couple different businesses and trying to keep things on track and then kids uh, going crazy at 6, 6.30 in the morning, <laughs> nothing happens. And, uh, and I'm, off on the, I'm off on the wrong foot. So right, that would right, be it. Right. Yeah. What sort of exercise do you, do you like doing? Uh, I love running. Um, so I actually started getting the CrossFit about six, seven months ago, but I, I run, um, I've run a couple marathons now. I'm going to do uh, the Honolulu Marathon in December again. Beautiful. Nice stuff. Yeah, nice great. stuff. Who's the most influential person in your career to date? Oh, man. There's a lot. I, I, everybody's been given. It, it's just amazing is that for so long, especially in a lot of businesses that I always wanted to just do it by myself and prove I could do it by myself. But I would say that it, top, you know, my father, I, he's, he's worked so hard to get himself where he is and he just pounds on the ground every day. And then I also um, have a great coach, uh, Trevor McGregor. He's mm -hmm. given me a, a ton of invaluable advice that, that's really helped me transform the way I'm thinking, the way I'm seeing things. Awesome. Awesome stuff. You know, it's, it's, it's great to have good mentors around you and yeah. you know, it's even better if you can have, you know, family members that, that have inspired you. I'm, I'm very much the same, same way with my parents. Uh, the most influential tool in your real estate business. Now, when I mean tool, is it a software? Is it your computer? Is it, you know, a phone? Is it a, is it a person in your actual team? And so I've had some people talk, tell me that, you know, their, their analyst is their best tool. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's yours? I, I would say, easily and this is a whole nother topic for a whole nother podcast is is my partner and, and my partner kevin he he was the piece that it, it was a tall order for me to get through this apartment um we actually were sitting on the on his back deck uh one day you know having barbecuing last summer and having some beers and and i was just talking about what i was doing and he he 
loved it because this is what he's been thinking about doing. We, we were just a perfect combination to go forward. And we both, we both carry off each other's energy. And we really just, you know, even on days we're putting out deals and, you know, getting bad responses or, or not getting any traction on this. It was just every morning, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. Just keeping the mind frame right. Sure. No, I love it. I love, I love that when you click with someone and you know this is, is going to work, right? So, yeah. um, so well done. Uh, what's been your biggest failure in your career and what have you learned? Uh, I, honestly, my, I, I've, I've failed a lot. You know, I, I've had a number of different businesses. Um, some have done better. Some have I've done worse. Um, and I, I would say my biggest failure is, is not taking action. That's a constant failure that if I sit there and, and don't take action, well, I don't have the chance and I can, and I'm, I, I've learned a lot that I can worry about all the things that go wrong and mm-hmm. sometimes they do, but most often if not, they don't. And I've spent all this time worrying about them. So right. I, I think that's incredible. Taking action, sitting on the fence is not going to get you anywhere, right? Correct. So yeah. take, get up there and take some action. The last question, mate, is where can people reach you to continue the conversation? I'm sure. Yeah. You had said we, we started a podcast on my wife, Peely and myself. Uh, it's the REI foundation, uh, podcast with Jason and Peely. Uh, you can reach out to us also at info at oakcappartners.com. Oak cap partners. All right. We're going to have that all up on my website at rsmpropertygroup.com. So remember to jump on there. Uh, Jason, I just want to thank you. Thank you so much for jumping on today's show. I just want to quickly recap on, on some of the things that, you know, as we just talked about, there's sort of three major lessons that you learned. Be conservative in your underwriting. Always, you know, make, make money when you buy, not when you sell right? It's always got to be the first thing. You're going to make mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes, but if you surround yourself with the right people that can guide you through the process, you're going to go okay. And the last thing is, you know, don't be afraid to ask questions and don't be afraid that you may not know anything. And so because you are so afraid, you are so worried that something's going to go wrong, you're never going to take any any action and you just sit on the fence and do nothing. Uh, I think your story is absolutely incredible. Well done, mate, in terms of getting this 94 units over the line. It must be a you know, give you, give you tingles down the back of your spine because, you know, it, it was, a, I, I could imagine it was a hard process and a hard slog, but you got there in the end. So awesome stuff. Thank you so much, Reed. Really enjoyed it. This was great. Well, mate, as I said, thank you for dropping by. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up soon. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Another great episode jam-packed full of some incredible investing advice, some great takeaway tips. Uh, If you do want to hit up Jason, please jump on my website at rsmpropertygroup.com and remember to hit up on the podcast tab. Thanks again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your real estate investing knowledge because that's what we're all about here on this show, continuing to grow your financial IQ. So until next week, take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing.